lended low paid at large, I'm lended low paid. Many of us were hoping things would improve a lot with the new year, but deaths from COVID-19 have hit half a million. Governor Andrew Cuomo has been attacking critics of how he handled spread of COVID-19 in nursing homes. And on the climate and energy front, Texas is learning that a deregulated energy sector may not be everything that conservatives claim it could be. Robert Henley joins us now to discuss these and other political and economic developments with a particular focus on their impact locally. He reports local and national politics and economics for Public Radio, Salon, the chief leader and other news organization, and he is a regular contributor to our show. I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me back. Now, uh, uh, you wrote yesterday about hunger and suffering during the pandemic. What's happening in New York uh, and and New Jersey? Uh, is, is hunger on the rise? It is across the country uh, something that has just gone up exponentially. Uh, what we there's a I would suggest people who are concerned about this go to um, feedingamerica.org, which is the the largest uh, network of food pantries in the country, and they have pretty reliable data that looks at the 2018 crisis in terms of food insecurity, and then what's happened since. And their measurement is the fall of 2020. And what we've seen is um, just an exponential rise in food insecurity, particularly uh, hard-hitting for children. And Mm -hmm. and this is a a number of things that are happening at the same time. Uh, As people know, uh, schools in America, particularly in communities that are challenged, uh, form the the place where kids often get one and sometimes two meals a day. So with in-school learning um, in abeyance, uh, and while some places like New York City and other jurisdictions have tried to continue um, providing lunches and, and breakfasts, um, there's uh, just, you know, a generation falling through the cracks. Now, in the data that I looked at uh, in New Jersey, uh, what we saw is uh, in some counties now, which you've seen in like Atlantic um, a, a County and around Atlantic City, um, it goes from like 17% of kids being food insecure to now 35%. So Something one, like 220,000 children may be going hungry right. in New Jersey. Right, right, right. And that, and that what's happened is in areas where it was already pronounced, it's, it's almost doubled. And then in places, and this is the part that shows you how broad and deep it is, and I suspect that this is true across the country, in places that we've associated with being economically secure, in the aggregate, like Berkey County and Morris County, you now see them going from the 6 7% of kids who are food insecure into the double digits. Hmm. So the bottom has fallen out. And so this is really critical because uh, we're right in the middle of putting the final touches on the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill. And so that's why any noise coming from the likes of, of, of Manchin, the, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, about perhaps the you know, back and forth, oh, well, they'll support the $15 minimum wage. We are in not just a depression, but you then have to combine the impact of a depression with a once-in-a-century public health crisis, which, despite the, the, the corporate drumbeat, is nowhere near resolved. But is it varying from state to state? Is New Jersey worse than New York State or New York City in particular? I, I would say that 
in places. I mean, one of the things that I'm looking at now is the connection between utility costs, because New Jersey and New York tend to be states on the higher end. And so I my working hypothesis, which I'll be glad to share with you once it's confirmed, is that there's a link between uh, what's been happening with utility prices and what's been happening to households in terms of squeezing out other priorities. Across the country, and this was something that actually created the opportunity for Donald Trump to rise to power in 2016, is the fact that what we had is a broad deterioration in working-class neighborhoods, even through the Obama years. So uh, we've talked about this before. So in swing states, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, where you once had uh, blue-collar jobs, you had a deterioration that never came back. So out of 2008, with the collapse of um, the housing market, what happened there was a decision by Summer Geithner and those folks to rescue Wall Street, and indeed they did uh, uh, refloat Wall Street, but they abandoned MLK Boulevard and Main Street in so much of America that you had a generation, a, a loss of wealth for African-American households that was unprecedented because that's their wealth was in households, in their homes. And when you had millions uh, tossed out of their homes, then you had this generational deterioration. Now, that's the, that's the broken foundation upon which COVID happened. That's why it's such an emergent humanitarian crisis. Well, City Harvest reports that one in five New York City children face food insecurity before the pandemic. So we can't blame everything on COVID-19. What about well, New Jersey and Connecticut? Were they at risk before the pandemic as well? Well, this, this, what happens is in, in wealthy areas, there's a population, um, and the United Way has done a lot of work documenting this around the country. And for people interested in this, I suggest they go to ALICE, uh, Unite for ALICE, which stands for, it's an interesting acronym, Asset Limited, Income Constrained but Employed. Ooh. And uh, this started, um, the United Way of Northern New Jersey got onto this because back in 2008, they were getting all these calls from Morris County from people that really needed immediate food aid and support. And they were like, well, this doesn't make sense because the federal poverty data doesn't indicate any problem there. And what they found was that there is a whole universe of people that are employed, um, that are working, but have trouble making their monthly expenses. And what they did is they looked at what does it cost for child care, specifically in a location, what does it cost for rent? What does um, um, utilities, what do those kind of uh, expenses run you depending on where you live? And the problem with the way we've measured poverty in the past is it's been done in the aggregate. That doesn't give you a picture. People don't struggle in the aggregate. You've got to get granular. So what they found out is these local conditions had created this whole um, hidden pocket of people that struggled. So in New Jersey, for instance, and you had something like uh, 10, 12% living below poverty, but then you throw in 20-some-odd-percent in this struggling category, then you're upwards of 40% of the population. Mm. Those numbers are even more astounding in places uh, like New York City, where AOC represents uh, places in the Bronx, where over half of the households before the pandemic were either living below poverty or struggling, as Alice kind of named for the, the single uh, mothers that this category is uh, 
is largely composed of. And so that's been happening across America. And so any idea that there isn't an emergent need for $15, and some would argue mm-hmm. a higher wage, just as disconnected from the circumstance of the population. And as we know, that's where our politics have been, and still to some degree, largely are. Well, you should speak to Joe Manchin about that $15 minimum <laughs> I'd wage. I'd love to. <laughs> so uh, when was the last time millions of Americans faced comparable deprivation? The Great Depression, or is this something that's always been around but underground? Well, I would say that um, in terms of the combination of uh, crises uh, is something unique in the sense that you have the unmooring of uh, mandatory schooling. And so school has always acted as this this resource uh, that operates in a number of ways. It gives continuity to young people. It provides public health um, surveillance. So you at least have hopefully at least a part-time nurse, sadly, maybe not even a part-time nurse, but you have some, you have some uh, mental health infrastructure around schools, although that varies greatly. So when you take kids out of that, then you have a situation where you have a population that is dealing with disease. Now, keep in mind, so we're now at the sad mark of over half a million individuals have perished. We're closing in on 30 million people that have been infected with the disease. Well, in practical terms, that means that from the research that, we, that we're looking at, between 20 and 30 percent, doctors tell us, of folks have long-term, long-hauler, or lingering consequences of this disease. So there's millions of folks at home with somebody that is uh, convalescing, trying to get better, and young people trying to get educated at home over the Internet. And in some places, they need to have access to the Internet. We've seen an increase in crime rate. Is that just coincidental? Well, I think that it is. um, It's fair to say that there is a certain kind of um, uh, collective stress, and we see that the things that have been, uh, the infrastructure that's available, the pressure valves just aren't in place. Um, you have a situation, and this is something that uh, and you get into, it's so important to try not to make generalities when you see these things, but just take the instant case of what's going on in the New York City subways, okay? That is a, such a confluence of neglect, and I think we may have gone into some detail about this in the past, but, and I've done a lot of granular reporting about this. Now, New York City has had a homeless uh, population problem for a very long time. It's going on a couple of generations now. Uh, but the, the confluence of the, the mental health crisis and the lack of shelter, really we can lay back to a decision that was made back to uh, Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's father, after the Geraldo Rivera reporting about the abhorrent conditions in mental health facilities in New York State, the response of the state was to close them. And there was a conversation at the time, this was when I first started reporting, that we're going to have community-based neighborhood facilities. Well, Leonard, it never happened. And so largely what's happened is there are thousands of folks who need mental health care, and they're undomiciled, and they're left to their own devices. Now, that happened in New York. It happened around the country. And I have been documenting where because of my work in uh, tracking the civil service, it's often civil service folks, librarians, subway car conductors, uh, subway station maintainers, who end up running into these folks who are having profound problems. They often bear the brunt of physical attacks, and they're stabbed. And so then what we've been doing historically is throwing the police at that problem, 
which we can see is wholly inadequate. You posted an article in the Chief Leader today about how unions that represent the U.S. Postal Service's workforce are welcoming a congressional probe into what they maintain has been the failure of management to keep their members safe during the pandemic, and then to hide the deadly results as a way to limit the agency's liability. Is that all because uh, of the, um, uh, could we put all the blame on uh, Postmaster Louis DeJoy? <laughs> well, I would say that um, the size and scale of the post office make, would, would be a, uh, it would be a challenge no matter who was leading it in terms of you know, you have 7,000 facilities across the country, hundreds of thousands of employees. But what uh, has laid out, at least uh, the thing that just really blew this wide open, was an inspector general's report by uh, the USPS inspector general in audit that went around the country and found that in 40% of the facilities they looked at, um, they had a situation where postal employees were not wearing masks and were not social distancing. And so uh, this is something that uh, we've been in contact with the unions. Uh, Jonathan Smith, um, uh, who has uh, been looking at this, he, he leads the, the Metro unit of APWU, which represents um, folks who are in the postal uh, service in New York and New Jersey. Uh, he's been uh, trying to keep a step ahead here, but the problem is that the post office didn't really follow any of the basic CDC guidance. They were taking on that same denial mentality, the Trump administration, often leaving it to the unions themselves and the members to do contract tracing. And that's the problem, is that uh, as the unions tell it, they're not getting uh, transparent information about who's died from COVID or what is happening in terms of infections. And, and they didn't even do the basic temperature checking the CDC requested. They left 20% of the postal nurses positions open, so they couldn't even really follow through in the contact tracing. So now the uh, people who work in the post office take it upon themselves to try to network this information. Now, the post office would say in response that it's because of privacy concerns related to HIPAA. But the bottom line, it's clear they were in denial about it. And I would just give you one example. There's endless stories that we've taken in where and spoken to people where um, the post office has a sign, people may have encountered this themselves, where it says a mask is required, and yet they don't enforce it. And so postal employees also would have to work with members of the public who choose to make a public statement by not wearing a mask. Meanwhile, the managers and supervisors hide in the back office and avoid contact with the public. So that's where we are. And the death toll here, I mean, the numbers I've seen are in the hundreds, but uh, it's, there's no doubt that we're talking, you know, thousands upon thousands of people have been infected. And like I said, there's going to be long-term uh, disability issues that we're still not really prepared for. Bob Henley is our guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The death toll in the pandemic has now passed half a million with at least 28 million cases in the United States. And even if that's a drastic undercount, there are many tens of millions of Americans still at risk. Do, do we need to adopt a different frame of mind to address the crisis? Uh, aren't the people who are already convinced that things should be done convinced and uh, the people convinced that this whole thing is a hoax um, are going to be rather hard to, to, uh, to convince otherwise? Well, I would say that what I've encountered anecdotally is that 
once you have a death occur in your immediate circle, it does move the needle in terms of the opinion in that social circle. And so as th this has become more prevalent uh, and you hear, you know, uh, there's just so many stories working their way through workplaces. We had uh, the chair of the Civil Service and Labor Committee, Denise Miller from the City Council, uh, took testimony related to uh, an ATU uh, union member works, uh, MTA a bus driver from Staten Island, um, got the disease, tried to be so conscientious about not spreading it to his family, and his 10-year-old son ended up getting it and dying. Um, and then we have, you know, a board of election. We did this story, uh, a tragic case of a board of election uh, shop steward for CWA represented um, the folks that fixed the voting machines, warning uh, for months about the substandard nature of a warehouse that he was working out in Queens. And nobody listened, um, except for maybe the city council uh, chair of the, you know, Denise Miller and the union, they listened, but it didn't make any difference to the workforce and he had, and he ended up dying. So I, I'm just getting these stories every day. And so when you hear about this idea that we're going to open up and go back to normal, um, the unions are raising serious questions about the degree to which the city or any agency is really prepared for this. And I think that's the problem here is that we're getting into this kind of group thing that people see some vaccinations and that's, and that's great. But um, we, we're not, we have not turned the corner on this yet. And so I do think that it, it, it does require a kind of redoubling of vigilance. I mean, I do think that the, the president Biden is setting the right tone for at least noting that, there's something of consequence that's unprecedented that's going on in terms of this mass death event. In your Insider New Jersey essay yesterday, you relayed another reporter's account of an eight-year-old girl coming to tears during a video online learning class. So um, is that something we should be concerned about, the psychological fallout that this current situation uh, is creating for a whole generation of kids? Uh, uh, Largely out of sight? Yeah, I mean, that is that is the thing I was getting at in terms of the erosion of the soft infrastructure of school. You know, as somebody yeah. that, you know, uh, raised uh, three daughters, you know, I um, the idea of having school is this 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 resource for you. It's a place where um, once that's gone and you don't have the day to day, especially if you manage to have uh, good teachers that can act as a support, you take that away and put that solely on um, families that are already stressed out, that are already struggling. The folks I mentioned before in the Alice cohort, asset limited, income constrained and employed, and you don't have that. So what I'd suggest is, and I think we need to do, is have um, something very much along the lines of the WPA, a conscious decision that this, as soon as we can get to a certain point where people are inoculated, um, a, um, a very robust household-by-household reset that provides support um, for summer school that makes a very conscientious choice to uphold uh, children and families. And, and there is some sign in Congress um, that we see some, some movement in this direction where there, some of the things that are contained in this bill will get at that. But, you know, I, I remember doing the stories and, and checking out the research. We know, for instance, that a, a kid that doesn't get a summer job, right, we know that that means that they're going to have uh, depressed earnings later in life, right? So can you imagine if a lost summer has lifetime consequences, 
what it can mean to lose this much school in person. Of course, I had summer jobs when I was a kid, and I found them depressing as well. But that's a whole other matter. Um, <laughs> a life expectancy declined by a full year in the first six months of 2020. And the United States already had low life expectancy compared with other industrial democracies. Have the pandemic and economic decline affected the country in other ways that we have barely recognized? Well, I would say that one of the things that needs some more research and attention is the fact that we did have some warning about this mass death event in the form of uh, three years in a row of decline in life expectancy. And we've mm. talked about this before in the program. Yeah. The last time that happened was leading into 1918 and to the Spanish flu cycle that happened those um, few years after 1918. And so um, what I would suggest is that, yes, you're right, that this is a traumatic event. Um, and, and in some ways, it's... Um, you know, we know those of us who are in, in the New York City region are familiar with the experience of that post 9-11 uh, circumstance of, of having that mass death event that was replayed over and over again. Well, imagine the scale of that. And now we know that the losses that we've had are greater than the casualties of, of the world wars, again, Vietnam. So there is something that's happening. And so uh, and at the same time, uh, we've seen the social institutions that we rely on um, and the idea of even in-person civic meetings and all of that has has become very atomized. And so you see a um, an erosion of um, the, the social structures in a certain way that, you know, you have to make a really active, it's possible now, live in isolation in a way that you hadn't in the past. And so we do have people um, uh, struggling and yet it's hard to, to know where they're at because we don't have that kind of public square that we did. So, I, and, and it's funny because the nonprofit organizations that deal with this kind of thing that are, that are supposed to be, you know, they're on this, on this beat, if you will, they're, they're in a funding crunch. So there really does need to be a, a conscientious effort at the municipal and granular level to check in on the circumstance of the population. I think we're lacking that information. Well, President Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act of 1950, which allows the use of emergency powers to control distribution of products and compel companies to adopt different priorities. Are you aware of any measures being taken in New York or New Jersey under that act? Um, no. I mean, what we uh, what we have is uh, there was a kind of kerfuffle with, the, uh, with what happened with the uh, weather and then the attempt by the Biden administration to ramp up delivery of the vaccine. So, and we'll hopefully see that they, get their, they promise to get back on track. Uh, well, but, here in uh, New York, the vaccination campaign has been a mess. People are finding right. it difficult to get appointments. And yet there have been reports of vaccine doses being wasted. So, uh, right, right. <laughs> we're supposedly the greatest, uh, most efficient economy in the world. Well, and, 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 and certainly while we're talking, I guess we have pictures coming from Mars. But uh, <laughs> yes. I guess the thing, right, and this goes back to um, the foundational question of how ill-conceived uh, this whole effort was from the very beginning. And, and it's important, I mean, to be fair um, to the current administration, 
we have to go back and look at the fact that for the entirety of this period of time, we had the federal government operating as a predator state, playing the states off against each other, failing to come up with a comprehensive, cohesive strategy, and then and then holding up states that were, uh, you know, uh, so-called red states where masks weren't being worn as, you know, as the example of the way to go and targeting the blue states for open hostility. There's nothing. It's unprecedented. I mean, that's why people are surprised by the insurrection of 106. That was just a logical progression. The last administration was making war on blue states. And so it's it's uh, it's that. And the fact that there was no vaccine plan in place. I mean, they fell short. They were supposed to have 20 million by the end of his term. They didn't break three million in terms of vaccine doses. How do you account for the fact that uh, Republicans picked up seats in the House of Representatives? And and I would barely lost any seats in the in the Senate. It was only uh, well, extraordinary would, circumstances. Right, right. But I, I would say that a combination of things. One is that um, you had um, the Trump campaign, and even in New York and New Jersey, right, picked up votes. He didn't carry the state. Um, and if you look, for instance, at what happened in uh, this is the radicalizing and energizing of the space that happened. If you look at the map, electoral map of New York State with some 60-some-odd counties, right, you see that Biden won, but only by carrying, by a lopsided margin, the high population centers that or districts that were urban-based. So what that does is it goes back to the fact that the way that we have drawn these electoral maps do not reflect the nature of the actual population. I will point out to you that for instance, in New York State, here's a distorting factor. Because of the incarceration, what happens with incarceration, I'm sure, I'm sure you've, uh, you, you know about this, where when we had the war on drugs and millions of people of color primarily were arrested and incarcerated, they're sent to rural areas that are Republican, where their physical presence counts for the purpose of, of apportionment for Congress. Meanwhile, they disappear from the voting rolls where they're from. That's the kind of thing that's created. So it also means, I will say that, um, and that's not to give uh, Pelosi uh, a pass. I do think that the failure of the party to come through with a coherent, unified message um, about um, the need for an economic transformation uh, resulted in them not being able to translate down ballot in the energy we saw that Biden had. And the governors of uh, the tri-state area are all Democrats, so we can't blame Republicans on everything. Governor Cuomo <laughs> is under fire for both his policy regarding nursing homes and his response to critics like Assemblyman Ron uh, Kim. But how has Phil Murphy been doing in New Jersey? Have um, Has he and New Jersey Senate President Steve Sweeney put aside their differences to address the health and economic crises? I, I would say that um, what Murphy did that seemed to have been a, a, a bit different uh, approach, uh, one issue I followed pretty closely was the issue of uh, work play, worker place protections for, for essential workers. So one of the things that Murphy did was bring in um, the unions, SEIU, and CWA, and immigrant right groups that are involved with uh, you know undocumented essential workers, 
and um, worked with them to design a way that there would be a standard uh, that employees, people that had to work at grocery stores and out in the community that they could rely on. And so, and then have a reporting system where if there was a violation, um, they, a worker could call without suffering reprisal. So that why does New happen. Jersey continue to have a higher infection rate? Well, I would say that um, in terms of New Jersey, it is an atomized, it's a, a decentralized place. And, and it's also the highest densely populated uh, state in the country. But it also has some 560 some municipal jurisdictions. And so you and 21 counties. And so in New York City, when you have 8.3 million people that are under the um, administered by a centralized public health bureaucracy, it's much easier to get compliance, Leonard. And so, you know, in New Jersey, um, you have, you know, and depending on the county you're in, um, you have middle managers that may or may not believe that COVID is a problem. You are listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. today oh boy before i return to my conversation with bob henley i'd like to take a few moments to ask you to support wbai all independent media find themselves in difficult position right now because of the pandemic but as a small public radio station that relies 100 percent on the generosity of our listeners WBAI is in a particularly difficult position. And that's why we're asking everyone who tunes in regularly to Lend Bit at Large to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this free speech radio station on the air. And one great way to support uh, free speech radio is MBAI <coughs> is... Um, uh, to help us throughout the year by becoming a, a sustaining member of BAI Buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10, $15, $20, $20 whatever level is comfortable you, by you, with you by calling 516-620-3602 or going to give to WBAI.org. Bob, as, as someone who keeps a clo close eye on coronavirus coverage, what are some of the ways that you feel corporate media have fallen short on this pandemic? Well, I think that uh, they have really missed the boat in describing the day in, day out dangers and risks that uh, were, were and are avoidable for essential workers. And I think they lionize them, but don't provide an opportunity for essential workers to speak to the issues. And because so often, those essential workers have insights um, that would work better for society if they were heated. And so the, the lack of uh, workers' voices in, uh, who are doing this work and who are carrying this incredible burden just really are missing. Um, they're abstracted as kind of like a talking point, but we don't hear their stories. Hmm. 
And that's why BAI is probably more important now than ever, although uh, it's always served an important role. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would. I would. I would say that also one of the things that I, I just – every issue that we're talking about here was, was something that was addressed on this station decades ago. So if you've been um, keeping track over a period of time, it's the thing is that so much of the news isn't new to you, right? And well, so if you're watching left- the local watching the local news on television, you're going to see that uh, there were a bunch of fires, uh, that uh, somebody, you know, there are other kinds of issues, but they're not discussing the things that we are talking about here, which really affect right. lots of lives. Right, right. Well, and because also I think that one of the things that's happened is we are dealing with so much of content that we that we get that's delivered through social media is driven by analytics, not by by the choices that you're the individual choices you're making, but by this decision that's made about, you know, manipulating your choices and by really limiting the range of the debate. And so I guess that that's the thing that now more than ever, it cl- it's clear that we need to widen and broaden what it is we're hearing. Again, the number is 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us on the show and the station, thank you. My guest is Bob Henley, who is a regular contributor to this show, but also to many other sources uh, in public radio, to Salon, the chief leader. Um, and uh, he uh, can be, you can read his Twitter feeds at Stuck Nation. Uh, he also, you can be re- reached at StuckNation.com. Yeah, so yes, Stuck, Stuck Nation, that's exactly right. And I do do direct messages. And I'm always looking for leads on stories, and uh, I'm I'm working on something now around a situation where thousands of uh, substitute teachers, uh, through no fault of their own, um, didn't get the work that they were promised, and now um, the state is coming after them for uh, the unemployment that they got. I mean, there's just so many stories. Mm. And Um, sometimes you deal with this. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, it's like this is a case where um, there just isn't um, there's just so few outlets where these kinds of issues that are having a direct impact on people's lives can find uh, a place to get amplification uh, because so much of what is is on the media now is driven by product placement or the desire to um, you know like I say drive traffic as opposed to informing and empowering listeners. And sometimes you even get into historic issues and how they apply today. Uh, You discussed uh, issues of presidential accountability in a Ross story essay last week, arguing that we should not make the mistake with Donald Trump and the rioters of January 6th that we made with Jefferson Davis after the Civil War. What mistake was made then? (laughs) Well, this was this was this goes back to I think we may have spoken about this time, but one of the things when you look at the, exactly what happened on 106 was uh, that the, the folks that um, targeted the Capitol had designs on coming after Mike Pence, the vice president, and also Speaker Pelosi, number three in succession, 
And um, at the time, uh, I, I I felt it was actually it had more it was more analogous with the attempt that uh, Booth and his conspirators had to decapitate the Union Army and the Union and the United States government with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It's instructive to review that that attempt happened four days after the surrendered Appomattox by Lee, and that it was uh, a last gasp effort by a pretty broad-based conspiracy to decapitate uh, the Union. And so I just found it passing strange that just, uh, you know, not very long after the victory in Georgia by um, by the Democrats, all of a sudden we had the Confederate battles, uh, Stars and Stripes, in the Capitol and a targeting of the leadership of the country at a pivotal moment where there was supposed to be a transfer of power and the memorialization of the Electoral College for uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris. Uh, moreover, um, I thought that looking at the pedigree of the folks who were involved in doing it, um, that this was really like like an insurrection. If you go back and look at what happened with the way that the U.S. dealt with um, the Civil War, not only did we betray, uh, particularly Andrew Johnson, the, the work of Reconstruction and flip it on its head and basically turned the South back over to white supremacists um, that came out of the 1876 miserable deal with uh, Hayes and Tilden. But then also um, Davis refused to um, ever recant, right? Hmm. And so— Had he been charged with treason? Because on Christmas Day, 1868, President Andrew Johnson pardoned former Confederates for for the crime of treason. Was he one of them? which, Which was fascinating is— he was charged, but they never followed through with the trial for fear of riling up his base. Does it sound mm. familiar, Leonard? Now, they didn't interesting. want to get the Confederacy. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I said, and then so in 1978, Congress and Jimmy Carter restored uh, Jefferson Davis's citizenship, which is something, you know, uh, you know, and so that's how we resolved it. That's how we've been splitting the difference since. And we're surprised but even, about the insurrection. But even going back earlier, Jefferson Davis was released on bail in 1867, and the bail was raised in large part by northern abolitionists, including Horace Greeley, uh, for the same sort of uh, reason that they uh, they felt that uh, they didn't want to uh, divide the country any more than necessary. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess this is you know great. Men it's a way of healing the country. Everybody else. Yeah, I guess. And how did that work out? Right. Mm. Well, then we had Watergate, Iran-Contra, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, of Iraq, and people debated both holding the president accountable and healing the country. So uh, I, I guess I, well, uh, that, right. that debate continues. Well, I would say that I, I remember I, I had the opportunity to uh, listen. To, I went to an event at uh, the, the pack in Newark, where Bob Wood was, was speaking, giving, a, a I guess, a lecture. And I heard that warmed-over pablum about Gerald Ford, you know, being recognized, you know, uh, by the Kennedy crowd as a national hero for hearing the wounds of the nation in a time mm-hmm. of Trump, blah, blah, blah. Well, from my standpoint, had they done a deep dive and really gone after all of the creatures, the creepy call of creatures around Nixon and Watergate— who knows if Roger Stone would have still been in business for the 21st century? Yes. Well, the resolution of 1978 read in part, quote, 
in posthumously restoring the full rights of citizenship to Jefferson Davis, the Congress officially completes the long process of reconciliation that has reunited our people following the tragic conflict between the states. Um, does the phrase the tragic conflict between the states suggest an equal balance between um, the roles of the North and the South in the Civil War? You betcha. I mean, words matter. And there is that sucking up sound again. You, you wouldn't think that, uh, and I think to some degree, that's why it's so important to continue the reevaluation of history in light of our current circumstance. Because history is not a dead thing. It needs to be alive. So, uh, interestingly, Joe Biden was the judiciary, uh, was on the Judiciary Committee when it approved that restoration of citizenship to Jefferson Davis. He voted for it, uh, as he had a year earlier, to do the same for Robert E. Lee. Didn't come up in the debate. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't imagine Donald Trump throwing that up to Joe Biden, but I guess maybe... <laughs> no, I'm saying in the primary, right, in the oh, primary, that certainly would have yeah. been great fodder. They fell down on this opposition research. So you have to wonder whether he, his opinions have changed over the years or uh, whether uh, he just felt uh, that we should move on and let bygones be bygones. Well, I mean, he dealt a lot with this. Uh, I mean, particularly his positions uh, on the crime bill and the fact that he did go so hard and heavy against this, uh, this, this kind of draconian drug laws, which really targeted communities of color. Um, I don't know that, um, you know, he has said that he has, you know, uh, come to terms with that and is now going to make amends. But um, there's lots of uh, a lot's going to hinge on the degree which Merrick Garland rolls up his sleeves and steps up to following through on on these issues. I mean, there's been, you know, for a number of years, uh, there was at least these pattern practice investigations from the Department of Justice under uh, President Obama, where they would look at local police departments and put some pressure on them. Uh, and then for four years, it all kind of just disappeared. Uh, it's going to be important to see the degree to which they picked it up, especially in light of the current, um, this, this national anxiety related to crime. Well, tens of millions voted for Donald Trump and continue to support him. And leading Republicans level more criticism at uh, their party's deserters than they do at Trump. So contrary to healing, are our wounds actually growing deeper? Well, I would say that looking at the aggregate data, you do see that uh, Biden now broke like 60 percent. So there is there does appear to be an opening for the Democrats to display some competence. And so and they do have it's not so much a honeymoon period, but there is an opportunity to actually follow through and make sure that this $1.9 trillion um, uh, COVID plan get deployed, that the money actually get to where it needs to get to, that folks get vaccinated, um, and that we have a pathway um, basically to deal with the challenges ahead. But, I mean, when you see scenes like the implosion of the basic infrastructure in Texas reduced to you know, like below, you know, like some kind of uh, failed state, it shows you that um, this country is very much more like the, the country that Roosevelt came into, where you had th this kind of gross failure of basic things like potable water. 
Ted Cruz uh, was one of the senators who disputed the election results, uh, but he hasn't been uh, as criticized for that as he has for going to Cancun recently. Uh, his political career may very well be uh, totally ruined as a result, but uh, is that the only expression of, of hypocrisy we've seen recently? Well, no, I guess also the attorney general of Texas uh, was spotted, I guess. Uh, yeah, he uh, went to Utah. Going to Utah. Yeah, they all, they all skedaddled. I, I would say that um, one of the things that happens in a, in a traumatic situation like this and, and, and where you have one day after another creating these kinds of one crisis uh, crashing into the next, that um, it presents an opportunity for people to emerge in, in leadership quickly, and then for others to be decimated. So I think it's interesting to watch um, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez raise like $5 million and show up and work with uh, Congresswoman Lee in Texas and basically take the goodwill and, and progressive support she has and manifest it physically in, in, in Texas. Like, I, I do see, um, I see this happening where there is in the labor movement, this whole uh, COVID crisis has really raised the level of engagement because workers' lives depend on their paying attention. So I'm seeing um, labor elections where, you know, you're seeing longtime incumbents displaced by challengers. You're, you're seeing a kind of tumult and churn that matches the challenges of the times. Representative Steve Scalise uh, still refuses to admit that Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, although he does agree that uh, Biden is the uh, legitimate president, whatever that means. What do conservatives like Scalise hope to gain by taking a stance like that? And 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 what did Lindsey Graham hope to, to gain by talking about impeaching Kamala Harris? Well, uh, to get some time with Tucker Carlson, I mean, what's happened is with the uh, with the splitting up of our reality, so that you have this um, this separate existence in Fox World and in uh, One American News and in uh, Newsmax. It's totally possible to live in that world uh, and not have to bump into any other alternative reality. And there's sufficient energy, uh, whether it be my, the My Pillow guy or um, where this, where you can exist within that, and in certain districts, get reelected. And so the question is curating and maintaining that base. And there's no percentage. In, in fact, you can undermine your position if, in certain parts of the country, if you even contemplate or keep an open mind and make an effort to appear to be bipartisan or reach out. So. We've now created this contraption that that runs on this self-destructive mindset, where consensus is um, increasingly hard to achieve because the political polls um, uh, are 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 rooted and based in keeping this this conflict running. My guest is Bob Henley, and this is. Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, it looks like uh, Donald Trump is going to be um, tried for crimes, uh, economic crimes in New York. If he's prosecuted here, 
but not federally, how might his supporters in other states react? Well, I mean, I think that one of the we're talking about where the where the uh, key challenges is on in the middle in terms of the independent voters. And so it's important to understand that when we talk about his base, it's really, you know, a majority of a minority. And it's very important to put it in that context. The Republican Party is shrinking around the country. It has been for a while. In many jurisdictions, you have independents as a voting block, um, a larger group, a larger cohort than either political party. Um, and so there's a, a tremendous focus on um, the predilections of the subgroupings of the right-wing Republican Party. Meanwhile, we don't put much attention on a much larger group, which is the independents. Um, and so I think that it's in that realm that you have the ability to begin to build some kind of governing consensus to move the country forward. And that's where I think that Biden's um, hitting the right notes with yesterday's very um, solemn recognition of a loss of a half million lives, um, and then a certain kind of connecting into the, the gravity of the moment. So I think that, that um, that's where we, we're, we're going to make social progress. And so I think that a trial like this and an accountability, I mean, the details are going to come out related to Donald Trump's finances, will will marginalize those folks on the fringe even more. That's my hunch. We've talked in the past about uh, the current situation in American journalism. Uh, hedge fund Alden Global Capital is buying the Chicago Tribune. Have you been following that development? I've been following this whole thing of um, the increasing concentration of media outlets into fewer and fewer corporate hands. This has been a major thing that's been driving the deterioration of of uh, our, our national situation, and Alden, I believe. Alden owns the Boston Herald, the Los Angeles Daily News, the San Jose Mercury News, several other newspapers. Um, and many smaller news organizations have been bought up or have folded. So uh, are we uh, seeing a crisis in, or just newspapers being replaced by, by cable news these days? Well, it's even, I mean, I would say that, um, and this goes back to what I've experienced firsthand. So I'm 65, and I started working as a reporter when I was 17 in northwest Bergen County for the Ramsey Maher Reporter. I got paid 10 cents an inch of copy <laughs> and $5 if I took a photograph. And I covered boards of educations. I went to the local police department where they would tell me there was no major activity. And then I started carrying a police radio where I could find out for myself there was major activity. Uh, making myself rather obnoxious, Bob noxious to my friends. Uh, and then um, but what happened is I was um, there were four or five other adults older than myself who had kids and, you know, had a car who were covering local news. This was a grown up occupation that people did until they retired. Well, I submit to you that that workforce is largely gone. That idea of holding accountable local government with sentient beings who aren't part of the government, that has deteriorated entirely. And so I think that the, the deterioration of the local conditions is directly related to the fact that there hasn't been reporting about that deterioration. So when huge swaths of um, parts of New Jersey fell victim to zombie homes, like they did in parts of Essex County and Camden and the rest, there was no local reporter to go out and report it. 
And the the local papers, well, they were making money off of the foreclosure notices. There was no point in getting upset about the rate of foreclosure when it was the last thing keeping you in business. Well, luckily, public radio doesn't do that. Uh, Bob, always a pleasure having you on our show. Thanks. Bob Henley, who writes for uh, publications that still are thriving, like Salon and The Chief Leader, and also reports regularly on various public radio stations and on our show. It's always a pleasure. Thank you and so much. Talk to you again. And unfortunately, uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. I was having so much fun. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program, and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment about something you've heard on the show or simply want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLocate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned before, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting this station to go online, to give to WBAI.org, or to give us a call at 516-620-3602 to become a member. And uh, a reminder that uh, we really Hope you'll become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, um, which would be uh, uh, require you to make a monthly contribution of uh, any amount you see fit, $10, $15, $20, whatever level is comfortable for you uh, until you decide that you don't want to do it anymore. But it really helps us to plan for the future. So please give us that call at 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org to help keep this free speech radio station on the air. And we hope you'll join us for tomorrow's show when Jason Deeren will discuss his new book called Kill Shot, A Shadow Industry, A Deadly Disease, about the deadliest drug contamination outbreak in American history. And we'll see you then.